What an amazing passage to get to preach on. Um, although when I was preparing it, I thought I could do 10 sermons out of this, but you'll be relieved to know you're only getting one today. So you don't have to sit here for that long. So you may have heard um, of an old Indian fable um, about the blind man and the elephant, or the blind men, about six of them and the elephant. It's a story of a group of blind men who um, are asked to feel an elephant for the first time and work out what it's like. And each of the blind men take um, a part of the elephant and they feel just one part. So someone takes the tusk, someone takes uh, the tail, and the man with the tail is absolutely convinced that he has a rope in his hands. But of course, it's not a rope. He hasn't seen the whole animal. He hasn't seen the bigger picture. And I think this passage is a little bit like that. You see one thing, and you realize there's so much more to it than you first expect. At first glance, you think it's a lovely story about Jesus bringing his friend Lazarus back from the dead. And then you delve into the story a bit more, and you realize it's not about Lazarus. This passage is all about Jesus. And we know that because this story is sandwiched right in the middle of talk about Jesus' death. So in verse 8, we have the disciples begging Jesus not to go back to Judea because they're really worried that the authorities are going to um, kill him. And then at the end of the passage, if you read on a few more verses, uh, you then see the Jewish leaders uh, plotting to take his life specifically because of this miracle here. Now, as we've been reading through John's Gospel together, you may have noticed that he uses signs to tell us, to reveal who Jesus is. He starts with the turning of water into wine at the wedding Cana in Galilee in chapter 2. And then he goes on through some other miracles and he gets to this one. This is the seventh and the greatest sign. So we have the authorities who are determined that Jesus should die after he performs this miracle. And we have John using this miracle as the seventh and greatest sign. So there must be something pretty significant about this passage, about what Jesus says and does. This passage throws up so many questions, and we'll look at some of them today. But I think there are two questions that are really important that John wants us to consider. Firstly, who is this Jesus who John is writing about? And secondly, how does he want us to respond? So firstly, who is it that Jesus is? And secondly, how does Jesus want us to respond? So, who is this Jesus that we read about? Now, when you read through uh, John's Gospel and many other stories in the New Testament, uh, you might notice that he constantly surprises people. He overturns their expectations. He acts in a manner beyond their wildest dreams he doesn't always necessarily act in the way that people expect. Perhaps you'd expect him to turn the wine into water rather than water into wine in chapter 2. And in this particular passage, he didn't go to Bethany when the sisters asked him to go, and then he didn't stay away from Judea when the disciples begged him not to return. And then we read this. If you look at your, if you've got your Bibles and you want to have it open in front of you, we're going to go through the passage together. In verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he stayed where he was. Now we read through this passage, you sort of almost skip over that bit as you get into the next part of it. But when you really think about that sentence, I think it's actually quite startling. It's really not what you'd expect of anyone, let alone Jesus. 
If there's an emergency with someone that we love, we would do anything to get there to be with them, wouldn't we? You'd fly halfway around the world, you'd jump on the next train, you would drop everything just so that you could be with them. So why didn't Jesus do something? He got the call to go and attend to the emergency. Why didn't he go? Why didn't he even tell the disciples? He just stayed there. And his dear friends, Mary and Martha, in Bethany, watched their dear brother die. Now, it's important to note, certainly from the reading that I've done on this, that, it, that Lazarus would have been dead anyway by the time Jesus got there, even if he'd left when the message came. Jesus didn't wait so that Lazarus died. It's important for us to remember that. Um, he really loved this family. You can see that in the, mess, in, the te- in the text. You can see that he cared really, really deeply. But it does seem like the two-day delay was actually motivated by his love for the sisters, which might seem really strange to us, but we have to remind ourselves that our ways are not God's ways and his timing is not our timing. And if God created time, then he's never late for his appointments. So what was Jesus doing? Jesus just waited a couple more days until Lazarus was really dead. He waited until the first full three days of intense official mourning were over. There was a belief that after three days the soul had left the body and at that point the body would start to decompose. And that's when the person had died. At that point, the person was really dead. So here's Jesus waiting so that the challenge is greater. The greater the challenge, the greater the miracle. And Jesus tells his disciples in verse 15 quite clearly, for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Believe? Believe what? What were the disciples meant to believe? Now I think Jesus gives us a hint just before he leaves for Bethany. In verse 9, he says to his disciples, a man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. That verse reminds me of a summer I spent working in Kenya, and actually our first song just brought it all back to me. I felt I was standing there again. Um, but after dinner, we would, um, we would walk back um, and our Kenyan friends would walk us home and they would encourage us to switch off our torches. And as you can imagine, there were no streetlights there. It was really dark. Um, and it was almost impossible not to trip up when you didn't know where you were going and when your eyes weren't accustomed to the dark. And when I read those words, you can see what Jesus is saying, that when people walk in the daylight, they don't stumble but when they walk in darkness, they trip up. It seems that Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen in Bethany. He reminds them that the only way to know where you're going is to follow him. You'll be in in the dark if you try to live your life without him. But if you stick closely to Jesus, even if it means days or years of puzzlement, wondering why nothing seems to be happening, God's purposes will come right in the end. If we walk with Jesus, we'll be walking in the light. And Jesus has already told them this, and John's reminding us again that he is the light of the world. We thought about it a few weeks ago when we looked at John chapter 8, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
And the beginning of our series, back at, right at the beginning of John, it says, the true light that gives light to every man and woman was coming into the world. And so Jesus is going to demonstrate exactly what he means by this. He waits for two days, and then he travels to Bethany. And Martha comes to meet him. Verse 21 says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is she rebuking him? Or maybe she's just indicating her grief and her faith in him. She says, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. So even now, she hasn't lost her confidence in him. If only you had been here, Jesus. And how many times do we hear that phrase, if only? If only she'd worked a bit harder for her exams. If only he hadn't stepped out in front of that car. Maybe it's why we're fascinated with films like uh, Back to the Future or Sliding Doors or anything that's got a time machine in it, um, when there's ability to turn back the clock and, and to change history. And it's like Martha's using this very human longing of wanting to turn the clock back, of wanting that precious time back again. But we know it's a wistful dream, and so did Martha. She knows if Jesus had been with them, he would have healed Lazarus. He would have prevented all their pain and suffering if only Jesus had made it in time. But Jesus doesn't look to the past. He encourages her to look to the future. In verse 23, he says, your brother will rise again. And then Martha's response, I think, seems a bit flat. It's like she's read the correct Jewish textbook on resurrection, and she says, I know that he'll rise again, in the resurrection on the last day. But that's not what Jesus is saying. And so he asks her to imagine something. He wants her to imagine that the future of life and resurrection that she's just said that she believes in is actually brought into the present, into the here and now. It's like he lifts this veil for a second and he wants her to see heaven come streaming down onto earth. But what does he want to show her? We've already heard in John's Gospel over the last few weeks, and when you read it, that Jesus has been revealing himself as the giver of life. He gave life to water by making it into wine. He offered new life to the Jewish leader Nicodemus and to the woman at the well in Samaria. He's healed those who are paralyzed and who are blind. And he's announced to the people that he is the bread of life and the water of life. But now he makes the greatest statement of all. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says that life and resurrection is not just a future doctrine or a future fact or something that can be given, but it's actually a person. And that person is standing right in front of Martha, right now, challenging her, urging her to believe the impossible. Now Martha's next response, it doesn't indicate that she thinks that Jesus is going to bring Lazarus back to life. Later on she tells him that there's going to be a smell from the tomb showing that she thought that Lazarus was still dead. But it does seem in some way like the scales have been lifted from her eyes like she's woken up suddenly. Through her tears, instead of darkness, she can see the light shining brightly. 
Her brother might be dead, but Jesus is here. He was with her. And so she responds with faith, I believe that you are the Christ. Instead of saying, if only, she says, if Jesus. If Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer, the promised one. If Jesus is really God, if he's living and present amongst us, if Jesus is the one come to bring life and hope and resurrection, then there is hope, incredible hope, for Martha, for Lazarus, but actually for all of us. And then there's some suspense. The story sort of leaves us hanging for a little while as Martha goes off to get her sister Mary. Perhaps the writer's wanting us to leave, wanting to leave us with this question. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Martha calls her sister. The teacher is here, she says. Now, I want us also to meander briefly for a couple of minutes because um, there are a couple of points I think that are worth men- mentioning here. Firstly, teacher, that's a really significant description by a woman in those times. Jewish teachers or rabbis would not teach women. But Jesus does. The Gospels tell us that Jesus did teach women. His attitude towards women was remarkable. It was actually really radical for those times. And it's important we remember this. These words are a reminder that the hope that Jesus brings is for everyone. There is no one that his offer of life and resurrection doesn't extend to. And then secondly, Mary's response is really different from her sister's. In verse 32, she falls at the feet of Jesus. And we see this personality um, difference in other parts of the New Testament, in other stories about Mary and Martha. And I really love the difference between these two women. It's like Jesus is saying, you can respond in different ways, and it's fine. If you read on into chapter tw- John chapter 12, you'll see Mary's outrageous act. She unbinds her hair. She pours expensive perfume over Jesus' feet. It was an extravagant and adoring act of Mary in her love for Jesus. Jesus doesn't expect us to all respond in the same way to him, but he does want us to all understand the truth about him. And then back to the story. In verse 35, our shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And this is not the professional wailing and loud weeping of the hired mourners or the detached spectator. But the words Jesus wept might not be the best translation either. And that's why I quite like this picture, because the Greek word actually means bursting into tears. It's not like it's quiet and controlled tears but it's an eruption that we humans feel when we're really emotional about something. But Jesus knows that he's about to bring Lazarus back to life again, so it doesn't seem that he's crying for Lazarus. When you read the passage, it seems that his tears are actually for the pain and the grief and the unbelief of those people around him. This is Jesus the one who bore our grief and carried our sorrows, as Isaiah the prophet wrote hundreds of years earlier. This is Jesus, sharing the pain and suffering of humanity. He's with us in our need. 
He feels our pain. He lives our experience from the inside. His tears reflect the emotion of his heart. And most of all, he is longing for us to believe. It's the word made flesh, standing at the graveside, along with those that he created and he loved, and he weeps. But then if you look in verse 38, his weeping turns to something else. Our translation says deeply moved, which is very nice and British. But again, it's not quite how the original language expresses it. It really should say an outburst of anger, inexpressible anger or outrage, rather than grief or deeply moved. Is it because of the hypocritical grief of the higher mourners? or the unbelief of the friends. But again, that seems quite harsh, because this is a really painful situation. So the better explanation seems to be that Jesus was enraged at the evil of suffering and evil of death and the suffering and the pain that it brings into human life. So on the one hand, we see Jesus weeping with us in our pain and with us because of our unbelief. But on the other hand, we see him really angry at death and the suffering that that brings. When Jesus sees Mary's grief, it's like he sees the pain of the whole world. But he's come to bring life, and he's come to destroy death. And now he's going to prove that to those watching. So we come to the part of the passage which is probably one of the most dramatic moments in the whole of the life, the stories of Jesus. Just imagine as he stands in front of that cave entrance and he talks to this large crowd and he tells them to remove the stone that's covering the entrance to the cave. And then we have Martha, always concerned about the practicalities of the moment and really worried about the smell. But Jesus reminds her of his promise. He knows there's no smell because he knows that Lazarus is no longer dead. And all that's required now is his command, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes shuffling out into the world of life and light. As the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd calling their name, Lazarus hears his Lord calling him. And in this moment, we see the glory of the Father and Son being revealed. But not only that, we also see the nature of God's love revealed for us. It's a love that walks with us in our pain and our suffering. It's a love whose purpose is to lead us into belief, into faith, and ultimately into life. And it's a love which is incredibly personal. It's Jesus. It's a person. God's love is revealed for us in Jesus, not only as the source of our life, but he himself is that life. So can you remember my original two questions that John puts to us in this passage? What does this story reveal to us about Jesus and how are we to respond? Well, firstly, how do we respond to Jesus with our pain? How do we react? Are we a Martha or a Mary? And I think it's important to say that both are equally fine. We react in different ways. And Jesus says that we can react in different ways to him and that's okay. Are we like Martha? Do we have to, are we rushing off to Jesus? Are we telling him exactly what we think? 
Perhaps there's some prayer of longing. You can't understand why it hasn't been answered yet. Run off to meet with him. Talk to him. Tell him what you think. Ask him why he didn't come sooner. Why he had let that terrible thing happen. Or are you like Mary, who falls before him weeping, and who says to him, come and see. And you lead him in your tears to the deepest place of grief and sorrow. But I think the main, passage, main challenge of this passage is, who is Jesus? Because actually we need to know who we go to with our pain and our suffering. Jesus tells us that he is the resurrection and the life. But then he demonstrates it by showing his power over death. Now I think this has been quoted in one of the John sermons already, but it's perfect for what we've just read. C.S. Lewis says, Let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Either Jesus was and is exactly what he said, or else he was insane or something worse. You wouldn't expect a madman or someone intent on evil to bring their friend back from the dead. However, this is something that you could expect the creator of the universe to do. So if this story is true, then surely we have to believe who Jesus says he is. As Jesus told Martha, resurrection life which triumphs over death, it's not confined to the distant future, but it's present with us now. Even in the face of death, Jesus can be trusted. He says, he who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. To believe in Jesus means that we believe death is defeated. And if we live with Jesus now, our eternal life starts with him right now too. So how do we respond to Jesus? He says, do you believe this? Do I believe, not just in an abstract way, that Jesus will bring life and resurrection, but that he himself is my life? Do I believe that Jesus will burst into the present with life, with good news, with hope? Do I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the resurrection and the life, the one who comes into our world of pain and sorrow and death, but brings hope and new life. And if I believe this, do I allow Jesus' gift of life to permeate every area of my life, to seep into every corner of my being, to bring life into every relationship and hope into every situation that I'm part of? So maybe let's just take a few minutes just to ponder on these things to think about what Jesus has been saying to us. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? <laughs>